The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And also while people are getting settled on this cold night, I'll introduce our most recent guest, Mahapajapati, on our altar. Some of you probably noticed we have a second. You might have guessed it was just another version of a Buddha, but actually it's uh, the first bhikkhuni, the first ordained woman at the time of the Buddha, who just so happens to have uh, taken care of the Buddha. The, the Buddha's mother, evidently, as, at least as the stories go, died a few days after giving birth. And so the Buddha's mother uh, raised the Buddha, nursed the Buddha with one of her own children. Um, and uh, then later, after the Buddha's awakening, she showed up with a bunch of other women from the area where the Buddha was born, and they wanted to ordain. And so they did, and she became uh, an awakened one, an enlightened one, after her, I don't know, I think in a pretty short order, actually, and is sort of revered in the Asian Buddhist cultures, Mahapajapati. So we decided after... Centuries of patriarchy and not just Buddhism, but just generally in Western culture, maybe other cultures as well, that would be nice to have some other images around the place. So we did, we talked to some of the uh, bhikkhunis in our tradition and they recommended that we get a statue of Mahapajapati. So we did put it up. We also got, this is not in the Theravada tradition but we got a Kuan Yin. This is not evidently not a historical figure, Kuan Yin. She's quite famous, though, in Mahayana Buddhism, like you find in China. And she's like the archetype, archetype of compassion in Buddhism, in that lineage of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and is just depicted in different ways at different times, but uh, sort of listens to the cries of suffering humans and responds to the cries of suffering humans. But with wisdom, not just taking care of us, but with wisdom. So it's really meant to depict the quality of our own hearts, not something out there that we can call upon, but something here and now that we can call upon. But uh, my wife and I thought it was a beautiful statue, so we purchased it for the center. And I think one of our community members is going to carve a really beautiful little compassion altar for that corner that she'll sit on eventually when we get it done. And uh, if you haven't noticed, we have a well-wishing book over there too that you can always write in if you know somebody that might like the community to keep them in mind. You can just write a few words down in the book there. And then uh, people read that. People come to the center for different programs will read, see what's up with folks. They may not recognize your name or or know the situation, but they'll see what you wrote. And, you know, it's just a way for us to open our hearts to each other. And then we do read it out loud at our monthly loving-kindness practice group, which is always the first Friday of the month, which everyone is welcome to attend. And maybe one more thing. You might have noticed when we when you walk in above the Shurak, there's a picture of a, an Indian woman, Deepama, and she's a, one of our recent contemporary teachers in this tradition, teacher of Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, and a real powerhouse teacher who died not that long ago, maybe 15 years ago or so. 
and taught at IMS, a place where I've done a lot of my practice and now teach in Massachusetts. Um, but that's why she's there. She's sort of uh, the senior woman teacher in this immediate lineage over the last 50 years as these teachings have come from the east here to the west. So we've been talking just recently about truthfulness as one of these ten paramis, right? We've been talking about these beautiful qualities of the heart that in the tradition are the qualities that allow us to cross the flood, remember? And the floods are wanting nice experience, obsessing about nice experience. That's a flood. sweeps our mind away. We can think endlessly about pleasant experience. I got an email from Shelly and Stacy, two of our leaders here, teachers here, and they're in Mexico, and they're on the beach together having a great time, right? And so I could obsess about being in the warmth, tropical breezes, beautiful sandy beaches, or whatever, and it's endless. You know, even when you're there, you can obsess about I mean, that's, that's when you really see the actual dynamic of mental proliferation is when you finally get what you want. And what are you doing? Thinking about getting what you want. You, we always think that when I get what I want, I'll be satisfied. But just notice the next time you get what you want. There may be a moment of satisfaction, maybe even a couple moments. But then pretty soon, because it's such a big habit in the mind, we continue to desire the desiring doesn't cease because of gratification. It just finds another object, whatever it is. Just ask the people who won the lottery <laughs> whether desiring has ceased. <laughs> I'm sure it hasn't. So this is our predicament. And there are ways to cross over these floods of desiring, sense experience, and desiring to become somebody and desiring to be done with everything, these are considered the common floods that sweep us away, right? that allow the mind to get caught in mental proliferation on and on. And so we develop, it's said, if we develop some or one of these ten qualities to perfection so that it's, they're deeply, it's deeply established in our heart, in our mind, then we have immunity from these floods which is another way of talking about freedom or awakening or enlightenment. It's when we have that immunity, that freedom from being swept away. We're still a human being. We still have our conditioning, the cultural biases that have been conditioned into the mind. But now the mind isn't swept away, isn't confused by these tendencies of mind because we have got have established some of these qualities. So just to review... Generosity is one of these beautiful qualities, the absence of stinginess, wisdom, renunciation, or um, a con- an inner contentedness, patience, energy, resoluteness. Did I say patience? I, um, loving kindness, equanimity, something, something else. Did I say loving kindness, equanimity, any? Uh, resoluteness, mind, no, not mindfulness isn't one of these, but it's related to all of them. And then now we're doing truthfulness. Maybe that's the one I forgot. Yeah, truthfulness. So this is the one we're beginning now. Last week, actually, we started truthfulness. 
And uh, now we're talking about truth, <clears throat> not in terms of some metaphysical proposition. This is the way it is. I've got it. I've written it down, actually. I have it in my pocket, and it's my truth. You know, and I'd like, I'd feel better if you all believed in my truth. Or you have your truth. But it's not the truth that the Buddha is talking about, this commitment to truth that gives us immunity from being swept away. It isn't something you can, the mind can grasp and own. The truth uh, that we're talking about, it's, it's like a value or a, an allegiance to the way it is. <clears throat> like, do you want to know the absolute truth? Well, this is it, right? This subjective experience that you're knowing right now, this is the truth of your life. And if you think there's more to the truth than this, where do you think it is? I mean, where would they keep it? Right? This is the amazing thing. We miss it. We were quite dismissive of, in Buddhism we call it Dhamma, or Dharma is the Sanskrit version, and Dhamma is the Pali version, two early Indian languages. Hindi is actually related to these languages. So Pali, it's Dhamma, and this tradition comes, uses the Pali language for sort of the recorded teachings of the Buddha, and then later schools of Buddhism use Sanskrit. They're very related, like karma versus kama, or Dhamma versus Dharma. So Dhamma and Dharma mean the way it is, not the idea, not a concept, but the subjective reality, not mediated, not uh, distorted or confused by the thoughts we have. It doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. It just means the thoughts aren't distorting the mind's connection with things as they are. And things as they are isn't, you don't need a special moment to connect with things as they are because this moment will do. And you see like how arrogantly our mind, our thinking mind, wants to dismiss that this truth of the way it is right now is relevant. But the interesting thing is in terms of developing truth as a parami, as a way to, to get immunity from life's floods, what sweeps us human beings away all the time, caught or lost in conceptual proliferation, obsessive thinking, worrying, planning, hating, judging, wanting. What actually gives us immunity is not so much what we find when we open to the truth of the moment. It's more about what's, what we don't find. So when we train our mind, you know, we take on a training ground. We pick up a training ground or a training regimen. Like we train the mind, the, the attention part of the mind, to attend to the sensations of the breath, for example, or to attend to the physicality of the body, just like the experience of sitting or the experience of walking. Or you could train your mind to attend to the physicality of knitting, or washing dishes, or pretty much doing anything, right? Breathing in, breathing out. 
So we're training, and it's a training because because of habit, momentum of habit. Even when I'm doing something simple like trying to train and being sensitive to breathing in is just these sensations, and then breathing out is just these sensations of breathing out. The mind wants to create, the thinking mind wants to create a mental representation, basically a story or an image that will represent the experience, the actual physicality or the actual sensations of breathing in and out. Have you noticed this in your practice? So it's like you're there maybe with one or one and a half breaths and then very quickly, mostly with the wisdom in the mind unaware, the mind is now in a subtle way or in a, a not obvious way thinking about the breath or imagining the breath almost as if it's watching a videotape that the mind has created about the idea of me watching my breath. It's like, instead of being sensitive to the in-breath, it's as if the mind or the attention is watching a documentary that our mind has created about me watching my breath. I know it sounds crazy, and it is a little crazy, but it's just a habit that's gotten overdeveloped, right? There's, there's real usefulness in the capacity the mind has to conceptualize because it allows us to problem solve when we're not directly facing the problem. I can chew on something. You know, my wife now is in Cuba, and I can, you know, think about the relationship I don't need to be interacting with her to think about the relationship. I can bring it to mind, right? Because I can conceptualize a me who's married to this other person, and this is who I think she is, and this is who I think I am, and this is how we are together, and this is how it works well, and this is how it doesn't work well. And So I'm not saying that's skillful. I'm just saying that we can do that. <laughs> Or we can think about other problems that we might that might need to be addressed because we can abstract them with our concepts, with our images in our mind, and think about them. But then it go then it gets you know some momentum, and all of a sudden that's all we do. And we can be actually interacting with somebody, but we're not actually interacting with a somebody. We're interacting with our idea, sort of dealing with our constructions of our own mind. So we take up a training ground. Because of this commitment to truth or truthfulness, and because we understand that the truthfulness we're committing to is not an idea, a concept that we can grasp, it's a process of connecting, right? And you can use as a training, you know, it, it's got to be one of six things because that's all there is. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, and thinking. And there's no other way that the mind or knowing, there's nothing else that is known. We only know through these six sense gates. We know thoughts because this mind, our, all minds, is, all minds are sensitive to mental activity. Mental activity makes an impression on the heart and mind. Sound makes an impression on the heart and mind. Sight makes an impression. Touch makes an impression. And taste and smell makes an impression. 
nothing else makes an impression on the mind. If you think something else does, it's one of these six things. So mental activity is generally the thing that we think is more than what it is. But it's just the thought being known. And if the thought has a charge, well, that's physical sensation combined with some concept being known, some thought, some, you know, mental. You know, what is a thought? It's not much of anything. But it, it does have a, does make an impression on the mind. Pink elephant, that's a thought. And it has, right, you couldn't help, like you heard it, but then you had, then the thought, right, the mind perceived the sound, created a thought, and then the thought was known. And in that knowing of that thought, it makes an impression on the mind, just like touch does and sound does and sight does. In a way, this process of thought and perceiving, right, it's like uh, we have all this arch- archival, all these files. And so when I think something or see something or hear something, it like brings some files to the surface and then there's like a, a fluttering of mental activity related to whatever else is being known in that moment. But the trouble is when some thoughts get going, we want to have, the habit is to have thoughts about the thoughts or more images about the images. So this is what we call papancha or mental proliferation. And because of that habit, we have slowly, probably over the years, become deeply addicted so that we seem to prefer mental proliferation from a more simple, immediate, direct experiencing of sight, of sound, of touch. Thought is just thought. Motion, just emotion. These things are just what they are. So when we take up a training ground like being aware of the breath or being aware of the whole body or being aware of hearing, then what we're doing is we're training to be with the hearing or be with the breathing in, breathing out in and of itself, not in terms of the thoughts or images we might have about the in-breath or about the sound. So when I'm aware of the breath coming in or I'm aware of a sound, like I said, it will trigger thought. But we don't have to be confused by the thought. We can know, we can, if it's not too strong, the thoughts are too strong, just, just let those thoughts be in the periphery. But if they sort of are asking for attention, then we remind the mind, remind the wisdom in the mind, or the wisdom reminds the mind, that's just a thought, right? It's just that archival material coming to the surface. That's a natural process. When I see Tom sitting over there, you know, there's just seeing. But because part of the mind recognizes that, then the thought, Tom Carlson, comes to mind. You know, and then any other files related to Tom Carlson, they also come to mind. And then the files that are related to those files that were related to Tom Carlson, they come to mind. And that's why we're swept away so much by mental proliferation. 
So we undertake these trainings because we're inspired by this way, you know, the, to cross over these floods. We're inspired by the possibility of immunity from being swept away over and over again, living a life of di- disconnection, which is so unsatisfying to be disconnected, to be caught up in our thoughts. And that's why we are so vulnerable to silly things like, you know, spending too much time on the internet or talking, having unsatisfying conversations with people that are more about not wanting it to end and about a meaningful connection or vulnerable to overeating or vulnerable to drugs and alcohol or so many other ways because we've gotten so disconnected. It's such a yucky feeling we're really looking for anything that will help uh, will help distract us from feeling that hollow, unsatisfied feeling. But the way is not more of the same. The way is to drop the disconnection, right? So we're learning the practice. Really, is learning to come into the moment. But it's not our habit, so it takes a real commitment, a real training. So let's say we're working with the breath. So we're, in a sense, realizing that the experience of breathing in is right here. And it has nothing to do with the thought, I'm breathing in now. You can use that thought, I'm breathing in now, and it's a good thought if it aims the attention to the actual physicality of breathing in and then the physicality of breathing out or the actual experience of hearing or the actual experience of lifting and placing if you're walking. So it seems a little artificial at first, like why would I be so devoted, so interested in something so silly as awareness of lifting my foot, awareness of putting my foot down, or awareness of opening the car door, or closing the car door, breathing in, breathing out. But again, it's not so much that you're going to find something amazing in that experience is if we can be there 100%, then that deep habit of mental proliferation has to cease in those moments. I can't be 100% intimate with the breathing in process and obsessing in some way, having a judgment about the breath, wondering whether I'm doing it right. There's no way to be really there with the inhalation and worrying, planning, judging, comparing, or anything else. So what we're doing with the training ground, the training grounds or the techniques, mindfulness techniques that we've been learning, is we're setting up moments of insight where the mind realizes this, you know, the reality of this present moment, the reality of this, unmediated by obsessive thinking, unmediated by language. And the the thing is that the language, the proliferation, it literally creates a prison. The concepts like who I think I am, who I think you are, it creates the existential experience of separation and the existential experience of fear and a sense of lack. All of that existential difficulty 
is a constructed experience arising out of mental proliferation. When the mental proliferation ceases, all of that existential weight in that moment ceases. Right? And so when people have that experience, if they're, if they're awake in that moment, they'll notice, whoa, what just happened? Right? It's like a little sliver of a mystical experience or you know, an altered state. Because the mind, which has almost always, we've experienced the mind, heart, almost always in terms of this imprisonment, imprisoned by our fixed ideas about the way it is. And then now there's a moment, the mind experiencing this without the prison, without the container, like open space. Everything happening on its own. No existential fear, no existential sense of lack, not being worthy or good enough, no existential uneasiness at all. So we need that, those little glimpses many, 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 many times, maybe tens of thousands of times. And then what happens is when we come back into the prison, the mind now confused by the thoughts it has about things, but each time it comes back, there's just a little bit less confusion. So you might think that the, the answer is I just have to be so into what I'm doing always that I'm always suppressing mental proliferation, and then that's the ticket. But that just becomes another kind of prison, like we're afraid of mental proliferation. right? So I've got to be like so into putting my sheets of paper down and you see this sometimes in Buddhist retreat centers where people, like, they're moving so slowly, they're chewing slowly, and it's like a cult, like zombie land. I mean, it does. It looks like zombie land. Some of you may have heard of Ajahn Chah. He's a very well-known uh, Buddhist monk from Thailand. He died in the early 90s, a quite influential, wonderful uh, teacher, and he was invited to IMS, this place in Massachusetts, where I teach sometimes, and I've done a lot of my practice there, right in the middle of the state, Massachusetts. And it was during one of the three-month retreats. And back then, in those days, uh, in the late 80s, I think it was, they were doing a lot of the Mahasi Sayada style of practice that comes out of Burma. And people generally move pretty slow when they're doing that style of practice, and they're doing a lot of mental noting of what's happening. You know, breathing in is like this, breathing out is like this. But they literally, you literally train your mind to label what's predominant. Lifting, placing, lifting, placing. So to do that, people generally move pretty slowly. And he'd sort of walk around and kind of make fun of people looking like they're sick because they're moving so slow like zombies. And he'd say, I hope you get better soon. (laughs) (laughs) So... we don't pay close attention to the breath or to walking or to other, to knitting, so that that's what we're going to do all life long. But we're doing it so the mind starts to recognize this any moment, not mediated by language. Because then when language comes back in, the mind has a different relationship to thought. Oh, it's just thought. 
Now thought isn't as confusing as it was the moment before that little insight. And then if we've had that insight a thousand times, then the mind's relationship to thought, it's like that prison that our concept used to hold us in. Now all of a sudden the prison has like lots of little holes in it. So it's, it's like there still, you know, like the idea of me that I have about being a male or the idea that I have about being 57 years old or the idea that I have about, you know, being a Dharma teacher, a, a meditation teacher. You know, those ideas can be quite imprisoning, but more and more we practice, we're not, we don't, there's not that much self-importance or self-definition with these kinds of ideas. I still know in normal company, like if the question is asked, I still know to say I'm 57 years old, I'm a male, I'm, I do this for a living, I'm, but that doesn't mean I'm as confused as I might have been 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Right? Over the years, I can still use concepts. I know how to talk, you know, but I'm less confused by the concepts. I can even, old emotional patterns can still get triggered, like being defensive or feeling like I'm not good enough. Or wonder, or com- competition. You know, I've got that sort of deep conditioning in me to be competitive. But now, when those things get triggered, it's like porous or semi-transparent. Like I still sort of feel the normal emotions that are associated with that whole psychological package, but it's like more pretend. Like I don't believe it in the same way I would have believed it before. So I don't have to follow its dictates like I might have followed in the past. And this is the gradual awakening that this path is all about. But we have to do the training, even though it might seem a little artificial, where we're taking the attention and we're training, you know, and you just pick your training. It's the breath, it's sound, it's the whole body, it's walking practice, it's, you know, it should be a combination of things. And we're training to be in that experience in and of itself, not mediated by language, but not obsessively concerned with getting rid of language because that's just more thought. I shouldn't be thinking. Let the thoughts come and go. Practice not being confused by them. How do you practice not being confused by thoughts? By getting interested, curious in your training ground, the breath, for example. What's it like to be aware of breathing in without the thought or without being confused by the thought, I'm breathing in. We don't need that thought to be intimate with breathing in, breathing out, walking, knitting, washing dishes. But we don't need to be afraid of the thought, now I'm washing dishes. Like one of the things that meditators notice, especially in longer retreats, is what you might call the Dharma coach, right? There's sort of like those of us who have as part of our psychological conditioning to be to try to do the right thing. You know, that sort of Girl Scout, Boy Scout. I'm going to do it right. I want to be good. In fact, I want to be the best. You know, and there's, there's, that's not necessarily bad conditioning, but it's, it has its shadows for sure. So, when, and then in the quiet of a retreat, that coach 
it's like gets really loud because there's not much else going on. The radio's off, the cell phone's shut off, you're not talking to people, you're just there with the immediacy of your experience. And then there's that conditioning in the mind. Remember, you're supposed to be breathing in now, you know, breathing out. Be, be aware, <laughs> be mindful. And you just want to sort of slap it, like, shut up. <laughs> but that's just, that's just taking the bait, right? So how to, ju- how to leave everything alone. That's this training. You were just leaving everything alone. So when we turn to be aware of the next in-breath or the next step or the experience of the body sitting, the sensations of the body, we're not saying no to anything. It's really an all-inclusive. That's why, like even if you work with the breath, you can even use that meditation word, yes. So while you're breathing in, not all the time, but every once in a while when it's useful, helpful, then just say the word yes, like yes, yes. It's like this. Exhaling, you can use a different meditation word like releasing or allowing, trusting. Because you're cultivating this radical acceptance, this radical intimacy, where in this moment, I don't need to intervene with a thought. I don't, uh, no matter how threatened (coughs) or how um, unknown this moment appears, I don't need to protect myself by thinking about it. So if a thought arises because of habit, fine, but I'm not going to take a hold of the thought and then have another thought and then another. Let the thoughts come and go. And you will get swept away by the thoughts unless you give the attention something to attend to. This is why initially in practice it's very useful to have a working ground, or sometimes we call it an anchor for the attention. And the breath is one of those anchors the Buddha talked about. It's a classic meditation technique to use the physicality of the breathing process. Perhaps down in your belly, just that it's really not awareness of the breath, it's awareness of the movement of the abdominal wall. Because there are sensations there, right? That expands and we're sensitive to the physicality of that movement of the abdominal wall. And then with the exhalation, it moves in. Or some people feel it here. Then you're really not so much a movement, but more of a touching as the air goes in the nostrils, touching as the air goes out of the nostrils. So we call it breath, but it's not breath. It's sensation. Right? We're aware of sensation. We're using sensation as an anchor sensation in and of itself, not in terms of the world, not in terms of a story of me who's breathing in and out. And we're learning to have moments of experience that are liberated from the prison that our concepts create, that we live inside of. We're stepping out of that bubble for moments. Now, it won't happen right away. It will be like you're with the breath, you're, you know, you're, and you feel like you have some continuity, and then the thinking mind will say, well, this should be sufficient. Why do I still feel imprisoned? But see, there's still the mind is still identified with the thoughts. It's only when the mind immediately recognizes that's just a thought. It doesn't take thoughts to be more than what they are. 
It is amazing when you first see, glimpse, what a thought actually is without attachment, without the mind being identified, without the mind confusingly thinking that that thought is me talking to me. What's a thought without attachment? That's like homework, right? Catch a thought moving through, because that's all a thought does. It just sort of, like, if, if this were the space of the mind, it just sort of moves through. And it seems like they're more impactful, but that's because as it's moving through the mind, the space of the mind, then another thought is going, whoa, I'm thinking this, right? And then the, before that's even gone, another thought says, ah, that's an important thought. I should be tight. You know, I should do this. And on and on like that. So because of the wrong understanding of thought, the wrong view, like what the mind takes thought to be, we get confused by thoughts. So initially you can't think our way out of this. So what we do is we train the mind to pay attention to ordinary experience with such a wholehearted devotion that 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 sort of obsessive attachment to thinking it gets cracked it breaks it falls apart for just a moment initially and then a lot of energies there it's like you step out of prison and there's so much space and even sometimes initially for people a lot of fear but it will always, whether you experience a lot of joy or a lot of fear, you'll always experience a lot of energy, right? Because all of a sudden, whatever this is, it's not constrained. Because actually what this is, is nature, right? Unbounded nature. But it feels contained, like, no, actually, it's just me, <laughs> you know? And I don't really know what I'm doing in my life. You know, and I do know I'm going to die, and I don't like that. I don't even want to think about that, right? So this is the prison, but awareness actually, those are just thoughts that the awareness is temporarily imprisoned by. So when we have moments of insight, then awareness is aware of the mind, the heart, nature, unbounded, not imprisoned, not contained, by fixed thoughts or concepts. So it has the flavor of lots of energy, unbounded energy, unbounded space, no problem, everything happening on its own. And the more and more we have it, the more and more we're not afraid of thoughts. So initially, we get really attached to all that space. And we don't want to get lost in our thoughts again. It's like, oh God, don't send me back to prison, right? And so we try to pretend we're not in prison when we are in prison, right? Because we think because we had that moment yesterday when the sun was setting and the mind got really present and everything dropped away for an instant, we think that's who we are now, that open, unbounded, free space. So then when we're back to being a neurotic person again, we think I'm not really a neurotic person. So that we just create another prison. I'm the person who's sure that I'm not a neurotic person. And we go about trying to convince all our friends that we're not a neurotic person. 
Yes. And then we go to, you go to your meditation teacher and say, I'm not an... And she or he smiles. <laughs> I remember that. Because <laughs> it's the... We, we all get confused. We just got to keep doing the work. Just keep practicing, coming back to the breath, coming back to the walking, coming back to the present moment in and of itself, just as it is, not in terms of concepts or ideas about the way it is. And little by little, things begin to open up. So I'll end with a poem, and then hopefully some of you have some some things to share. So this is, uh, I'm not sure where I got this poem. Somebody gave it to me. And I'm not sure how the person pronounces her last name. First name is Kip, K-I-P. Last name is M-A-Z-U-Y. Masri? That doesn't sound right. But And the title is, You Are the Doorway. In this moment, you cannot be the person you want yourself to be or others want you to be. You can only be how you are in this moment. Happiness does not come by emulating the peaceful, smiling Buddhist monk or the tan New Age guru promising you riches and the soulmate of your dreams. The secret is you are exactly as you are supposed to be in this moment. Your experience is exactly as it's supposed to be in this moment. That you keep turning away from yourself in search of something better is what breaks your heart. The doorway to unconditional peace, love, and bliss is through the awareness of you, exactly as you are in this moment. In the full acceptance and awareness of yourself in this moment, you immediately transcend it. You enter into a whole new reality free of definitions, descriptions, and separation. You with your sweaty armpits, your cranky disposition, and your insanity is the doorway to divinity. Because if you really become aware of what is here in this moment, you will find it has nothing to do with what you think. That's similar to what the Buddha said once. And this is a rough paraphrase. He said, no matter how one conceives it, it will always be otherwise. So no matter how we conceive who we are, what this is, that conception is never the way that it is. So your own thoughts, questions that you might have, including really practical questions about your sitting practice, it's always good to clarify them. And remember with this mic, you've got to hold it pretty close, not like this, but actually pointing right at your mouth so that we can hear you. So who'd like to begin? Comments from your practice you'd like to share or questions? What comes to mind? Yeah, Pierre. So when I practice with thoughts, sometimes um, it feels like I, I just feel the thoughts, but I'm not really aware of the content of the thoughts. So in a way, I, you could say I'm not aware because I'm not aware of the content, but I find it's a much more effective way to practice with thoughts than to be aware of the exact content of it. So just wanted to, to be to check aware of the exact content or to not be aware of the exact uh, content? It's more effective to just be aware of this kind of bubbling, yeah. but without being aware of the actual content of it. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point because... The content, it's really hard initially. Like if you're meditating and somebody's having a conversation, 
it's really hard because content, concept, is very seductive for the mind. Now, if they were speaking a language you didn't speak, it would be relatively easy. After a while, it would be like the chatter of birds. Their voices wouldn't be bothersome. It could be just hearing, just hearing. But content we understand is confusing for the mind. So there's a couple of things you can do. I'm not exactly sure what you're doing, Pierre, but you talked about it as a bubbling. So what I might, this might fit your experience. It's like a theme you can always take up because the mind is always interested in it is suffering and the end of suffering or stress and the ending of stress. So while you were watching thought, my guess is that the object of awareness was the absence of suffering and then whenever the mind got sticky with the thoughts, the presence of suffering. So in that subtle way, when you're observing, and it doesn't have to be thoughts, it could be with the breath or sensation or sight or sound, sort of even a more effective anchor for your awareness practice, your mindfulness practice is, is there suffering, is there resistance or no resistance? So if there's no resistance, then the mind is aware of the free flow, the everything happening on its own aspect of the present moment. And when there's tightness and resistance, then the mind is keenly aware, interested about the suffering, the burn, the friction, the resistance. Oh, this hurts like this. So that's a really good theme. When there's enough settledness, then you can go right to the essential meditation theme, suffering and the end of suffering. But it takes some practice to be able to be stable on, on that level. Yeah. Thanks, Pierre. Other thoughts that come to mind? Questions? Yeah, please. If you don't mind, it's nice to say your name. Sure, I can't remember. Uh, my name is Todd. I can't remember who said this, but uh, Marco Polo comes to mind. I was, I'm was. i so grateful. Uh, I came in from a ways ago and haven't been to a center for a while. But I'm just, I'm, the only thing that really comes to mind for me is once, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And just a quote that I've often thought of, and uh, I guess with that, I when did the center open, and, and how long have you have you been here? Yeah, we started in '93, so for a long time. No, but uh, just in this building since 2009. Are you affiliated with the Zen Buddhist Center at all? No, we're in a different tradition. So this uh, sometimes people call this tradition vipassana or insight meditation. Um, and uh, it's the kind of Buddhism, it comes out of Theravada Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism practiced in Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, and uh, Laos and Cambodia. So it's, it's really, and especially as it is in the West, it uh, really focuses on the Pali Canon, which is the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha, um, as, as opposed to later developments in the Buddhist tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Other thoughts, people? How about Mina first, right next to you, and then we'll go over here. Yeah, I I experienced this mental proliferation so much. Um, one of my like favorite things is I sit down and I'm like, oh, getting relaxed and 
comfortable here. And then all of a sudden I'm like on this like a really imaginative fantasy journey and it just goes on and on and on. And I'm like, all right, stop that. But because I'm an artist, I sort of treasure my imagination. So I'm always really torn. Like what is the role of my imagination and how is it appropriate to use my imagination or let it go? Well, you can, yeah, but you can't you have another time when you do that? <laughs> like <laughs> the, the art-making time, right? Because it's like I said, that, that ability to imagine and to proliferate, I wouldn't call that a proliferation because that's intentional. It's like the thoughts aren't driving it, the intention is driving it. Like you want to explore a particular theme. So there's some intentionality behind it as opposed to you, the mind is being led, dra- dragged, right? Because it, it doesn't know how to say no, right? So it's, it's like you could say, you know what? My son, my daughter, you know, you're old enough. Let's go take a trip, right? And we'll go visit, you know, some of the Civil War monuments and we'll go look at some of the plantations and we'll talk about our history of slavery here in this country, right? And that, that's really thoughtful. You, you wouldn't call that proliferation, you know, that all the planning involved. It's like really intentional. Oh, yeah, you're old enough. We'll read these books together. We'll take this trip in the car. We'll talk about it. We'll bond, you know. But another example might be where the kid just nags and nags and nags you to, take them to the Mall of America or the Valley Fair or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, and finally you just give in. And then once you're there, they want cotton candy and then they want to do, th- and you just, they wear you down and they, you just give in to them because you just can't say no, right? So in meditation, we're learning how to say no appropriately. Hatred is not the appropriate way to say no. We have to find like a love for the present moment, for the next in-breath, for the next step, for the rawness of the present moment. We have to fall in love with it and actually be interested in it because saying no to the obsessive thinking doesn't really work. So it's not that, that imagining is bad, but you have to create another habit where you love the, a radical simplicity of just breathing in, just taking a step, just reaching for the door. It's like a whole world that we can train the mind to fall in love with. And it just opens up our life in ways that are really hard to imagine. When, Because again, it's not that it's so amazing to be reaching for the doorknob or so amazing to be breathing in. It's about what's let go of. That's a, that makes it an amazing moment. That the mind is temporarily letting go of all of its constructs of who I am, what's important, the sense of being a part. All that falls away in the radical simplicity of reaching, breathing in, hearing, or whatever it might be. So you just need time for both. You know, some time where you as an artist sort of set up some reflection, some time to imagine, to vision, and some time to put everything down. And the meditation time is the time to put everything down. Not 
we actually come alive. So putting everything down does not, it's not like some dull trance state where we've really retreated from life. We're really moving into life, not mediated by language. It's a real, alive, vibrant experience when it's done right. Now, there are times we get really into those trance states and those dull states, but that's just because the practice is out of balance. Yeah, thanks, Mina. Thank you. Really helpful. And we have one more all the way over here. Thanks, Tom. And we'll end with this comment. <coughs> Hi, I'm Missy. Um, a friend of mine is, uh, uh, I know a man that's 88 years old, and he studied TM with uh, Maharishi back in the 60s. And he trained me a couple of weeks ago in transcendental meditation. Um, the only difference I saw between what he taught me and what we do here is there's a mantra. <laughs> Um, and, you know, he kind of, I told him that I came here a lot and, and, you know, I said, I like to hear reading. He said, but he's, you know, he's just really kind of sold on this is the only way to do it. So I was wondering, um, what you know about that, um, is, I mean, can, so now I'm using a mantra here instead of watching my breath. It's about the same thing, right? I mean, is it all just this? Well, it's the same deal. In some aspects, it's the same in the sense that to uh, the mind goes back to its habits, which is to think and worry and plan, but then you redirect the attention back to the mantra. Could be a prayer, could be the breath. But the difference with using ordinary experience like breath, like sensation, like sound is one, it's very conducive to practicing all day long. And two, we're not separating ourselves from our ordinary reality. We're learning to come into ordinary reality. So meditation techniques that rely on visualizations or mantras, they tend, as they get developed, to be practices that support the mind uh, secluding itself, retreating into deeper states of concentration. So you would we'd call that in the Buddhist tradition, samatha practice or concentration or tranquility practice. But the, and, and the, those are good trainings, but the style of practice we more often do here is what we call what we'd call a wisdom practice because we're, we're developing an awareness of what's here and now, what's ordinary here and now. So we're developing wisdom more than calm. But to do the wisdom practice, we need some degree of calm. So I would just choose what you want to do, but we're not doing that concentration practice most of the time here. Now, experienced people at Common Ground might take up some of the concentration practices for a couple years. Once they kind of get their feet on the ground and understand, then they might really give themselves to some of the more concentration techniques to develop uh, more profound states of tranquility and calm, and then go back to wisdom practices. That makes sense. He didn't explain it to me that way, that there was a difference between the concentration and the wisdom. He basically just told me to um, stick to a mantra and, you know, not fight the thoughts just like we do here. And mm-hmm. it was very simple. And I thought it was a, 
you know, there probably was more to it than that, than that, and you just pretty much explained that. Yeah, in the Buddhist tradition, you know, there's a, a very wide range of skillful means, not just one technique. And it's initially confusing because, in a way, we said, just tell me what to do. But what we're doing is we're laying the foundation for people to be independent. You've got a mind. You need more than one technique, right, to... But it, it does get confusing a little bit because we're not just telling people exactly what to do. We're laying down the principles of how to work with the mind. Yeah, thanks, Missy. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. Appreciate the silence. appreciating our spiritual ancestors, all the women and men who had busy lives, complicated lives, but still managed to do their practice as best they could. And generation by generation, now we're the recipients of this wisdom stream, this stream of compassion. So it's our turn now in our busy lives, complicated lives, messy lives, to develop these practices as best we can and to model the wisdom and compassion that comes out of the practice and to be part of the causes and conditions that support real peace and freedom from suffering in our world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.